You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. I've got Brent Johnson here today. He is the managing partner of Santiago Capital. Is that correct? Managing partner. That, that's right. That's right. Um, so, do you want to just give it a little bit of background as to who you are and what? Yeah. Sure. Your services are. Yeah, I think most people that have either heard my name or heard me talk before, you know, have heard me talking about gold. Um, so, Santiago Capital um, is a limited partnership which focuses specifically on precious metals. Um, but that's not all I do. I also am kind of an overall wealth manager for a number of high net worth clients in the in San Francisco Bay Area. And so, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks you should sell everything and put it all in gold. I think you should definitely have gold. And I think it should be the cornerstone of your portfolio, especially right now. Uh, but I'm really an overall wealth management strategist. So um, despite the fact that people only hear me talking about gold, uh, you know, I, I do kind of have a, a diversified business um, as a financial advisor. Fantastic. So we've had a couple of chats before. What what I'd like to cover today for listeners is dollar and gold. So, you know, the there's this wide consensus that they're inverse to each other. Um, yeah. And I know that you and I have discussed this before, and we believe that's not necessarily the case. So let's kind of, I'm curious if you could dig into sure. how we can have an environment which is positive for gold, yet at the same time we can have an, a, a macro environment that actually is creates a bull market in, in the dollar at the same time. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting timing, you know, you know, like, like you said, we've talked a few times and I've kind of come to this realization, you know, over the years that uh, through, through my study of the monetary system and figuring out how the system is actually designed, you know, that's what led me to gold. And interestingly enough, and, you know, it led me to gold as the anti-dollar, but, but interestingly enough, that same study and that same understanding of the design is now leading me to dollars as well. And it sounds counterintuitive, but, but I think if you think it through... Um, you know, you can get there and that, you know, traditionally the two are inversely correlated. Um, but I think we're moving into, uh, not surprisingly, somewhat of a time of crisis that, that that's maybe a little bit broad. Um, uh, but I think we're, we're moving into a time of a flight to quality is, is maybe a better way to say it punctuated by a number of crises. And I think there's going to be a, uh, you know, when you look around the world and you figure out where can capital go, I don't think it's all going to go to gold. Again, you know, maybe that's the right answer, but I just don't think everybody's going to put all their money in gold. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's going to go somewhere other than gold. So, if it, so, if you, so yes, gold's going to go up as, as a result of uncertainty and, and some crises and, you know, flight to quality, but it's not going to be the only safe haven. So, so where else are, are, are people going to go? And, you know, as flawed as the dollar is and as badly designed as the system is, I think on a relative scale, we are still going to be viewed, when I say we, I mean the, the U.S. and the dollar, are going to be viewed as a relative safe haven versus the other choices. And I think there is, you know, times periods when you look back throughout history where the dollar and gold have rallied together. Now, part of the reason that I think that, you know, we're going to move into this environment is the central banks have done everything they can to stoke inflation, right? Um, QE... Uh, one, two, and three, Japan, I don't even know what number they're on, you know, Draghi's done everything, the, you know, whatever it takes. And, you know, we're still in this environment where, you know, the banks in the U.S. aren't lending, the banks in Europe are crashing, uh, the banks in Japan are doing nothing. 
you know, China's dealing with the biggest credit crunch in history. So despite all these, you know, crazy measures, if, if that's how you want, or extraordinary measures that the central banks have taken, they haven't printed enough to stoke inflation. Now, it doesn't mean that at some point they won't. Um, but I think if you, if you, when, you, when you realize how much debt has been generated um, off of the you know, various monetary bases around the world, you know, I think if you add up the monetary base of the Europe, you know, U.S., Japan, China, I think the monetary base is around 15 or 20 trillion dollars. But the total, you know, the total money supply levered off of top of that is in the hundreds of trillions. So, and if you, you know, the debt is, is is even bigger than that. So, you know, all of that total money supply and all of that debt that's issued off of it, it's all in one form or another levered off of the monetary base. And it's that, and that is at the end of the day, debt is nothing more than demand for for future dollars, right? Yeah. Um, and now, maybe it's not all due today, but it's due in the future. And so that's future demand for those dollars or those yen or the, or the euros. And the amount of future demand for those currencies dwarfs the amount of currency that's been printed. And until I think, and I think to a certain extent, what has happened is these QE programs, the reason they haven't been inflationary is number one, to a certain extent, people don't understand them. Number two, the banks are just as scared as the people, so they're not loaning it out. And number three, what people do understand is that something's wrong. They don't really quite understand what's wrong, but they understand something's wrong, so they're less enticed to take on new debt or or, or, or borrow that money, or maybe basically they, they hold on to their dollars a little tighter than they otherwise would. That pushes up demand for the dollar, and you get slowing velocity of money. And the velocity of money is lower than it's ever been, um, and so I think, in a, in a weird way, the QE programs have not been inflationary, but rather deflationary. And I think they need to print a lot more to, to get them to be inflationary. So I, I think I kind of went off on a tangent there. A no, little that's, bit. that's that's kind good. Of a big, uh, so I just add to that particular component because I'm not sure everybody sort of understands QE and that all that that has done is it's increased debt. So it's not a direct monetization. If they were to directly monetize debt, then that it'd be difficult for that not to be inflationary. Of course, right. given the size of the debt that exists, monetization of that debt would require printing on a scale that would, I mean, right. Gideon Gono of the Reserve Bank of, <laughs> yeah. of Zimbabwe would be quite impressed. Yeah, exactly. And so coming back to gold and dollars, the way that I view this, and please shoot holes in it, is that gold gives you asset protection first and foremost. It's not something that you buy when you have a debt crisis if you're an indebted individual. So we saw that in 08 in the GFC in that you had this deleveraging that took place. And, and if so if you owe the bank money, you owe them dollars, you don't owe them, owe them gold. The right. first thing that you have to do is, have to, is you have to acquire dollars to pay back the debts. Right. There's a secondary transaction. If one was to look at that entire matrix and say, you know what, we're afraid of what's taking place and therefore we want asset protection, we will now purchase gold. It's a secondary step to the first step, which is I have to get dollars. Exactly. exactly. And so there's kind of two, 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 steps, right? two steps. And in the environment that we're in today, moving into what is increasingly a risk of um, environment or actually is already in a risk of environment 
is one where you require liquidity. So liquidity in today's world is basically euro, yen, dollar. That is the deepest, most liquid um, uh, currency markets on the planet and bond markets on the planet. Yep. So then it just becomes a relative issue of which of those is the best to be, you know, to be using. And certainly if you look at the fiscal situation of any of those three jurisdictions, the dollar is a relatively better bet. But it, so it gives you liquidity. It doesn't necessarily give you asset protection, but you're not buying it for asset protection. Gold, on the other hand, is that asset protection, yeah. which we've, we, we've kind of not, we haven't seen gold serving that purpose for the last sort of, you know, five odd years right. um, to the extent that one might have expected it. But I think part of that is, is that on a household level, people have been deleveraging and it's really on the public balance sheet side of things that leverage has been rising. And I think, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, okay, I think to a certain extent, people that are, grow up in the system, and when I say in the system, in the dollar-based system and work in the dollar-based system and, you know, they kind of are educated in the dollar-based system and then they go work on Wall Street or in finance in the dollar-based system, they're kind of institutionalized to think that this is how the system works and this is how it's always going to work, right? And to a certain extent, I think that harms them because they can't see anything outside that system. And so that's one of the, that's one of, the, and I think a lot of quote unquote gold bugs would say that about them and that, you know, they're so enmeshed in that world, they're not able to see a world that doesn't involve the system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's, a, that, that, that's a detriment to the people that kind of grow up in the system. But the flip side of that, I think that some of the gold bugs don't quite appreciate either is the institutionalizing and network effect of the network itself. <laughs> in other words, you know, around the world, it's a dollar-based system. And this has been institutionalized, you know, since the 40s and the 50s. And it's, you know, even since the 60s. And so it just, the longer it lasts and the more institutions that use that system, the stronger the network, the stronger the institution becomes. It, it's the same as like the, the Apple universe, Right. Um, the more people that have iPhones, that have iMacs, that have iPads and, and use the same adapters and the and the headphone jacks and all that stuff, it, it becomes harder and harder for a new entrant to break into that, right? Now, it's not impossible. It's possible that the killer app comes along and destabilizes that whole system and the system eventually goes away. But it doesn't change the fact that that system is very strong and very tough to break. And for a long time, as wrong as they may be, people will continue to use the system that currently exists, right? And I think that that's the same way with the dollar. And that's why I think we're, that's part of the reason why I think we're getting into this period where both the dollar and gold are going to rise together is because as we have these flights to quality, as we have these liquidity needs, as we have these um, people searching for the cleanest dirty shirt or however you want to, you know, relative yield or however you want to describe that phenomenon, even if people, quote unquote, wake up and figure out that the system is bad and they start to leave the system for another opportunity like gold or silver or some other real asset, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to do that all at once. And the, the remaining people of the system are still going to use that Apple universe, right? They're still going to use the dollar. And that increased need for liquidity in the system until the whole system changes, the need for liquidity in the system, I think, pushes up demand for dollars. You need to have grease within the system. And that grease in today's world is right. currency and it's dollars. Right. And further to your point that not everybody's going to move into, say, gold, they've 
They physically cannot. Right. I mean, um, you know, we discussed this the other day, a friend who's running the um, uh, foreign exchange and a large sovereign wealth fund is saying they need to move 10% of the cash portfolio into a currency and and that amounts to billions of dollars and he needs it net settled day's end. So he can't move into Krona, he can't move into New Zealand dollars or any of these other currencies, he literally can only go into euro, yen, or dollars. Right. And so can he look at gold? Yeah, but not for that portion. Right, right. Uh, and then that's, and that's, uh, I think that's the critical, one of the critical things to understand is that even if he himself wants to do that and he himself thinks it's ridiculous to buy dollars because they're very flawed and he himself would love to, to put his position into gold, the institution for which he works does not allow him to do that. And to change that institution doesn't just happen overnight. It happens you know, like if, if you're a pension fund manager, if you're managing a, you know, a, a you know, a retirement fund or, a, you know, an endowment fund, you know, there's, there's big, you know, investment committees that set the rules by which the portfolio managers and the chief investment officers have to operate. Right. And to change those, first of all, you have to bring the idea up and then it gets studied and then it gets put to a vote. And then even after it's voted on, it, it takes you know, a while to implement. It's the same as Brexit, right? You have the vote and everybody says, yeah, let's do it. But it doesn't actually get implemented for one or two years. And that's if they move fast, right? So even if, even if somebody, even if that portfolio manager says, hey, we need to change the system. We need to get out of dollars. We need to get into something else. It, it just doesn't work like that until things get so bad that they just everybody just leaves the system altogether. I just don't think we're there yet. No, and, and you're talking about large institutions there. So I'll give you kind of insight into some of the family offices that I advise. Now, these are family offices where they can do pretty much whatever they please. However, there's that institutionalized thinking, which has come from universities that have been attended. Yeah. It's come from colleagues that you go and have play golf with, et cetera, et cetera, whereby standard portfolio structuring is considered what you need to do. Okay. So there's this concept that no I need to have 10% in sovereign debt it's just I need to right and you look at it and you go well like why would you do that yeah. um, or I need to have x amount in, in private equity even though some of these private equity valuations make absolutely no sense at all yeah it's so there's that institutionalized thinking that has come all the way from the educational level right through and it's more prevalent in, in large institutions, but even at the family office level, depending on the size of the family office, it is inherently there. And the, the, the people that often get employed to consult to those family offices or to run the money have come from the same world. No, exactly. And I think that that's basically that's an opportunity for the individual in that right. as individuals, you don't have to have those constraints. Right. You don't have to answer to limited partners. You don't have to answer to... Um, to standard portfolio theory, you and can I think, think that's for why, yourself. What, what you're touching, I think, is is what really gives the opportunity to single family offices, because in a single family office, a lot of times it's not always the case, but a lot of the times there's the patriarch or the matriarch, and then there's the kids that are you know maybe running the family office with maybe one or two you know outside professionals who come in to, to give it that experience, right? Yeah, um, but. And, and they, because they, because it's their money, right? They, they can say, screw the system. I don't care what the CAPM says. I don't care what the traditional asset allocations is. I don't care what 
so-and-so at Yale or, or Stanford says, right? It's my money. This is what I want to do. And they can do that there, right? Mm-hmm. But at a multifamily office, it gets harder because usually at the multifamily office, that's a business that was set up to attract other families that weren't big enough to have their own mm-hmm. family office. But, yeah, and you... then those people that are running that multifamily office have to a certain extent, you know, be part of the system in order to attract new capital because they don't want to look like the crazy guy on a mountaintop, you know, that's managing money for two, you know, you know what I'm saying? And so the further away you get from managing your own money, you get, you get to people who are managing other people's money and the people that are managing others, people's money just don't want to be wrong. Right. They don't care about being right so much as they just don't want to be wrong. Absolutely. It's funny because I was talking with um, Mikhail Siding about this not too long ago. So, you know, for anyone that listens and doesn't know who he is, he ran Futures Bremer, which was a the largest, was not the largest, the most successful European hedge fund for a decade. And his methodology of, of trading and was, was obviously fantastic. Every single year they beat everybody else. However, they struggled to raise AUM. Why? Because when they went to potential investors, they they didn't have the ability to tick all the boxes, you know, oh, what's your risk profile? You know, how much is your allocation? Yeah, where do you put stop losses? All these kind of things. They they couldn't tick those particular boxes. Right. And so investors went, no, this isn't standard enough for us. It's not, yeah. you know, that's not what I learned at Harvard. It doesn't fit in the box that the consultant told them that they had to have. Correct. Right. And the, quite frankly, the world that we live in today, Brent, doesn't fit in any box. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look around you. That's for sure. What box does this fit in? So, yeah, what, what, what box do 10 trillion in negative sovereign yields fit in, right? Exactly. And so, you know, it comes back to this, and I've discussed this plenty of times before. Linear thinking in a dynamic world is a recipe for disaster. But that is exactly what we continuously do. It, or humans, because humans are, are attracted to safety and they're attracted to an understanding of what comes in the future. So that's where linear thinking fits with that narrative. The problem is reality doesn't uh, – proves to us that, that that's not real. It's, it's not consistent. So a really good example, I guess, would be if you look at how banks manage VAR, yep. they have risk profiles that are built. And I know because I worked in that environment with guys structuring products and pretty much it's six sigma that you know six standard deviations yep. from the mean is is the so we call it the the, the standard that right. um, that investment banks are fairly comfortable with and that in itself is meant to take place like one in every thousand years or something of that nature so you go oh that's pretty cool you know it's probably not going to happen right? right now the swiss franc break back in what january 2015 yep exceeded a Six Sigma event. Yep. Brexit exceeded a Six Sigma event. So how how is it that in the shape in, in the space of two years we've had two events which shouldn't have taken place in over a thousand in over two thousand years. Yep. Clearly we're not in standard linear thinking um, uh, markets. And so it takes a different approach to be able to manage risk and to be able to asset allocate intelligently. It's a. You know, it's, it's not a. It's not an easy yeah. task, but it's a task that you you have to think about. Yeah, and I think I think what these six sigma events that that, that you're talking about, if you think about it, um, 
with the exception of 2008. There's been a number of these Six Sigma events that took place outside of 2008. Now, 2008 almost brought the whole system down, right? And had it not been for, you know, Hank Paulson on his hands and knees begging Nancy Pelosi for, you know, a trillion dollars, it may very well have come down. I mean, it was that close, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But these other Six Sigma events that have happened over the years since then, it's remarkable how quickly the system, quote unquote, has recovered, right? Think think back, that move when the Swiss franc broke in January of 2015 was an incredible move. For a, It's unheard of for a currency to do that, right? Especially a currency like the franc. I mean, right. if it was the, the Malawian kwacha, you go, fine. <laughs> right. But now look, look, but look, look what the franc did since then, right? Mm. I mean, there was a hedge fund in uh, Miami. I'm trying to remember the, I can't remember the name of it. And he, he had been... Uh, he was positioned against the, you know, against the the franc, and he basically got wiped out in that, you know, two weeks. Like his whole fund was basically gone. Yeah. But two months, two months later, or three months later, the, the 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 franc was back to where it was, or not very far away from where it was the night before they the, the devalued. Up. Yeah. And so it's and, and the system recovered, and the system continued to function, and then you know Brexit, you know, it's still early days. I think we're still going to have a lot more fallout from Brexit than we've had, but. You know, an incredible move, incredible move. I remember, you know, people were talking about we're going to come in on Friday or Monday and the system's not going to run. Right. And by by Tuesday, we were Wednesday, we were back to everything's fine. And so now I don't think everything's going to be fine. But my, my point is the it goes back to this institutional effect that it is going to take a lot to bring down the institution and, 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 and the system. Now, I do think ultimately it is going to have to change and it's going to have to reset and there's going to have to be some kind of an accord or revalue. I don't know, however you want to describe it, right? I, I think the debt is too big that it is going to happen, but you have to, re- like inevitable and imminent, uh, I think Rick Rule says that a lot, or maybe it was Doug Casey that, that I heard it from. And to me, that, that's such a great line because it is definitely going to happen. I But the system can stay in place a lot longer than you think it can. Right. What I do find interesting, though, like you're talking about how the system has recovered from things like Brexit or the franc devaluation. While that's true, what surprised me certainly about Brexit was the was was the fact that you had you know twenty point moves in the currency, when at the heart of it, like we were just dealing with a referendum, which yeah, it you. Sh- you shouldn't have had that sort of move. This wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to kill Britain. It wasn't going to, war wasn't breaking out. Right. Yet, yet the, the market moves were of an extreme variety. And to me, that signals the, the, the fragility in the system. And I think that that system is becoming more and more fragile because the, you know, the, the intention by central bankers has been to calm markets, to keep them on a level playing field. And it's almost like the, you know, the I got, I got kids. And if you keep your kids indoors all day on a rainy day and you try and keep them calm, they're going to get like more and more pent yeah. up energy. Yeah. And eventually yeah. you open the doors and you release them and it, they just explode yeah. and they'll jump and run and go yeah. ballistic. And the, the longer that you keep them pent up, the more that, that, energy builds up and so central banks essentially have been trying to again you know linear thinking in a dynamic market they've been trying to suppress volatility 
And in by, by, by doing so, they've created these um, asymmetric moves that c- just come out of the system. Yeah. And people look at them and they go, wow, that's like a black swan. It's like, it's not really a black swan if you understand that entire build up to it. And so yeah. the, yeah. the frequency of these kinds of moves it's increasing, promises, right? promises to be, to increase. And, yep. and, 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 and if, and then you go back to standard portfolio theory and you realize really, really quickly that the vast majority of money managers out there have not realized this as a, as a new reality. No, I got it. You know, and this is a, you know, I, taught, I had dinner with a friend of mine last night and he's a, he's a trader for a, for a, a mutual fund company, you know, big, well-known mutual fund company. And he's a pretty sharp guy. And, you know, he, 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 he's smart enough to question like what's going on. You know, a lot of people that are, cause he, he's kind of, he's kind of uh, I think he's probably mid thirties. So he's no, he's not a new, he's not a new guy. He's not a junior guy, but he's not a senior guy either. Right. Yeah. But he's, he's not somebody who's just drunk the Kool-Aid and just, you know, accepts everything that's told to him. And he's, you know, he's, he, he has conversations with, you know, the portfolio managers that are above him and he realizes they, they don't really know anything other than their silo. Right. And what the mod, what their models, what they've learned about their models and, you know, what, what does, what does this, what, what is this ratio telling them or what does that ratio tell them? But it's all, but those ratios only apply within that silo, right? They don't know how to look outside the silo and see whether the system like it is actually functioning as it should. And so they just keep doing what they're doing. And, and, and he, and, and he said he, he grows increasingly frustrated because, um, you know, he, he can't get them to, to get out of the silo and, you know, despite, and, and that's what's kind of amazing to me, even, even after 2008, after the whole system almost came down, you know, people are just back into their myopic ways of thinking and just staying in their silo. And, you know, I don't know if it's just because the problems are so big, they don't want to deal with them or they don't have the capacity to understand them or what, but it, it's always shocking to me that, that people are willing to just stick their head in the sand and say, it'll be okay. No, it's a psychological trait, and you know, it's one of my my areas that I really enjoy studying in psychology because I think it's so important to to understand. I mean, I think it's a bit of a divergence, but I think that studying economics is is largely a waste of time. And the things that you should study are philosophy because it teaches you how to think, yeah, history because it teaches you what has transpired previously, and yeah. then psychology because that teaches you how markets operate. Because, right. because markets are just a collection of, of yep. human beings. And if you go back to the psychology side of things, people's habits do not change unless they're really shattered. Yeah. Okay. It's like if you've got a smoker, to stop smoking takes a lot of willpower and it, or it might take some massive event, a heart attack or, you know, there's, there's, there's typically, if you've got an entrenched habit, it's very, very difficult to break it. It's like plastic. So plastic has a, plastic has a memory. Right, we're, right. we're down here in New Zealand, and there's um, we just pulled out ski boots, right, because it's coming into ski season. Uh, you know, ski boots have plastic memory. As soon as you open them, they don't actually flex outwards. You have to pull them out because they've they've been you know they've 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 been held together by the clasps. Um, yeah, and so they've they've got that memory, and that's how human beings are. So you you've you've lived all of your life with standard portfolio theory, all this sort of stuff. You have this black swan event. If it hasn't killed you, your automatic yep. reaction reaction is to go. You know what? That was kind of like an anomaly. It's like sitting in the park and having a pigeon, you know, poo on your head. It doesn't happen yep. all that time. It was a it was an unlucky event. It happened. Now we can go back to sitting in the park, and the pigeon's not going to come anymore. 
Right. And right. and so it's easy for you to go back into because it doesn't require any thinking. It's easy to just go no. back to the way that you were. So that's again, it's that standard portfolio structuring, it's that standard idea. Um and and that is increasingly being tested by the market because we're having these events which are saying, you know what? The pigeon's coming. It keeps coming. One one of the things I, if if you don't mind, I, I want to I want to ask you about something because it's something that I, I'm struggling with a little bit, and you know I don't know if struggle is the right word, but it's, it's I'm wrestling with myself on it, right? Um, mainly because so I think let, let, let me give you kind of the, the two minute reason uh, based on the way the system is designed. Let me give you my two minute reason why I think the dollar is going to get stronger, and then the, the what I'm struggling is with is is the knock-on effects, the positive, the potentially positive knock-on effects from that. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what I mean. So, you know, when I go back, one of, one of the things I always try to do is when I talk to people is I try to explain them how the system is designed. Like if you're an engineer, or you're a car mechanic, how does the machine actually work, right? And once I kind of explain to them how the system works, they don't necessarily always get it, but they get that it's a little bit Ponzi-ish, <laughs> if that's the right way to, to say it, right? Without, without, without using the Ponzi scheme word, you know, the, the, it, it's not quite as solid as like accept it to be, right? And so, the, operationally, if you look at the monetary system, and let's just use the the, the U.S. as an example, there's four trillion dollars of monetary base, and that's made up of the currency and the coins and the reserves of the Fed. Okay, so you've got four trillion dollars of actual money that actually exists. And then the other money in the monetary system and, 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 or in our money supply. So our total money supply for the U.S. is between 15 and 20 trillion dollars. So let's just do 16 as an example. Right. So we've got four trillion of monetary base and that is used as the collateral to loan the rest of the money into existence. So there's 12 trillion of money that's been loaned into existence and there's four trillion of monetary base. But that twelve trillion that's loaned into existence—it's—it's—it's it's, it's kind of like virtual, right? It's—it's it's not actually there. You couldn't go to the bank and withdraw all that. It's—it's—it's it, it's ones and zeros, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's like it's like that fugazi that uh, Matthew McConaughey talks about in um, in uh, Wolf of Wall Street, right? It's like it's just out there in the ether. And um, and I'm actually doing a presentation on this. I'll send it to you when I'm done, and you can share it with your uh, you know your listeners stuff. But but what people forget is okay, so. You know, the monetary system, it, a lot of it's loaned into existence. So that $12 trillion that's loaned into existence is generating interest payments, right? So every year that interest has to get paid. But if that's all the money in the system and there, you know, $16 trillion is the total money, where does the money come from to pay the new interest, right? So there's only two places it can come from. Either, either that $12 trillion of the money that's loaned into existence is circulating and we have some money velocity and we have an extension of credit and you know, the, the economy is actually flowing and those interest payments can get paid that way by the existing stock of money. But if that's not flowing enough, then the Fed or the central bank has to come in and increase the stock of money so that the system, so the collateral in the system, you know, stays true and, and it doesn't cascade down on itself. Right. And when you say introduce, what you're talking about is base money. Introduce right. the base no, money. No, exactly. Not exactly. They, they, have to, they, they increase the base money to keep the system within balance. Right. right. Okay, so okay, so now so now we understand that, and let's say that you know you get the two thousand eight event or you get the two thousand eleven in Europe event or whatever it is. Right now, you go into a recession, the money is not circulating. At least it's not circulating like it used to be. Interest stops getting paid, defaults start, and they start cascading. You know, 
it's kind of like musical chairs, right? The music has stopped. Nobody else is moving. Everybody's scrambling for the chairs. So in our example, we've got, let's just say there's 17 people and there's 16 chairs, 16 trillion of monetary of money supply, 17 people, you know, everybody's trying to get a chair. But here's the thing is when the music stops, there's not really 16 chairs. There's really only four chairs, right? Those other 12 are virtual chairs. They don't really exist. So, so everybody's trying, you know, and what the Fed does is they come in, they try to bring in a couple more chairs, they blast the music and they try to get everybody dancing again, right? Mm-hmm. But in that moment where, where there is no music and where, where everybody's scrambling for dollars, not only is there more people than dollars, but the dollars that they think exist don't even exist. It, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the same argument that, that the gold guys will use for, you know, there's all these claims on gold, but there's only a certain amount number of ounces. You know, there's a lot of claims for the same piece of gold. It's the same thing. There's a lot of claims for the same dollar. Now, the difference is you can print dollars and you can't print gold. Right. But, but unless the Fed comes in and prints an incredible amount of money right away. Well, they'd need to print that 12 or trillion. No, exactly, 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 and that and that's why I say you know they 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 printed four trillion. Well, that's not nearly enough, and especially when you consider that that's just the monetary base, right? Or that's just the money supply. But then think of all the debt that's levered off of the monetary base as well. And then and so you know that's sixty trillion, and then the the U.S. debt, the, the the debt issued in dollars outside the United States is is another ten trillion. And so the the point is is that the the dollars in the system fluctuate or will have the same fractional reserve capacity that the the gold in the system does right like there's not enough dollars to go around and so that's part of the reason why i think when we get into these crises when there's a flight to quality when money stops moving when there's a liquidity event the dollars will go up in value okay so that that that's part of my thesis on why the dollar is going to go up in value here's the part that i'm struggling with a little bit because the dollar is going to go up in value that's going to hurt in international and emerging markets, I think. It's going to put downward pressure on commodity prices. Those economies are going to slow. Global growth slows. So there's a, and that kind of makes, you know, it exacerbates the flight to quality. The dollar gets even stronger. But now that money, the money that can move, right? The liquidity that can be found, where are they going to go? I think they're, because they're going to the dollar, they're not, they might not just sit in dollars, right? That's got to go somewhere else. Because they don't just want to sit there and get zero return on those dollars. So I think as crazy as it is, it flows into treasury bonds at you know 1.3% or whatever it is. And it crazy as it sounds, it probably flows somewhat into the stock market. And as crazy as that sounds, it probably flows a little bit into real estate. And so I, I but but at the same time, I think we're headed into a recession, in which cases those things should be going down. So that's that's the part that I'm kind of struggling with. I think the dollar is gonna get stronger, I think that's gonna slow down global growth. But in a weird kind of way, I think it actually might benefit the U.S. in the short term. So the way that I think about that, Brent, and I don't have any answers, I only have more questions. But if you've got that flight, what is essentially a flight to quality, if emerging markets are under pressure and the first human reaction is not for return return on capital, it's return of capital. Sure. And so the holding cash or, or treasury bonds at a, you know, one percent, because I think that's possibly where the yeah. ten year goes. Regardless, yeah, um, it, it kind of makes sense because you're not looking for a turn. Right. Where I think your argument for a essentially 
capital moving into, say, equities or real estate, where I think that that may take hold is where the central banks push that envelope too far in that if you have an environment where you suddenly, you, you, A, you want liquidity. So we, yep. you know, we started this conversation with the fact that gold provided you with asset protection and dollars yep. provided, with you, provided liquidity. So you yep. go to liquidity, you get your dollars. At the same time, you look at the system and you realize that, for example, in that environment, the Fed could very well start bringing up that monetary base, right? Yeah. And printing. Um, not not QE, but literally helicopter money. And yeah. so in that environment, it's in such a levered system, it's possible that you don't want to necessarily own, you don't want to own dollars, but you do want liquidity. And gold's not going to give you liquidity. It gives you the asset protection, but it doesn't really give the liquidity. Do you, in that environment, look at, say, Apple and say, you know what? These guys have got a shit ton on the balance sheet. They're a, it's, a, it's a strong company. It's not going to go away. It's going to provide me with asset protection, right? Because I know that I'm owning a real business and yep. it's going to provide me with liquidity because it's trading millions of shares a day. So I can see that that, that that could make some sense. But I think in order for that to take place would be this loss of faith in in the currency itself. I th- See, I think at that point, then you're talking about inflation, right? That's when Absolutely. the switch gets flipped, that's, right? That's, that, the that's when you go from the strong dollar to the weak dollar. And I think before you get that, I think you actually find that that's going to take place on the periphery. So if yeah. you look at most large, you go back in history, and you look at most most sort of large capital moves like that, on the periphery, you get breaks. So I'm watching for breaks in the system on the periphery, emerging markets, Yields on on debt in emerging markets, which are slowly creeping up. Maybe that's a sign. Maybe it's just a blip on the radar. I'm not sure yet. However, that's where I think you see it first is that that loss of faith in those periphery issuers, and then there's this rush back to the core, and the core is the U.S. Right. Um, <laughs> it's it's, it's it's ironic, but just that's yeah, and, and that's why works. I kind of think the dollar the dollar is going to get stronger, and then the you know the Fed they're going to come out they're going to try to do something that'll weaken the dollar for a little while longer, and then something else is going to blow up and the dollar's going to spike again. It's going to get stronger again. And I think I think all the Fed's reactions are just they're going to be reactionary, right? And it, and it might weaken the dollar for a while, but until they totally flip the switch and they yeah. do a twenty trillion dollar QE program and they do helicopter money and they go to negative five percent rates in banks. <laughs> right. well, until it totally gets flipped, I think the dollar has a tendency to get strong. Here's here's a here's a context. Okay, so for the last uh, post 08, we've had central bank coordination of a, on a, a nature that the world has never seen before. Right. That in right. itself has allowed euro yen dollar to essentially, or well, the central banks of um, ECB, um, BIJ, and Fed being able to do things that they probably wouldn't have been able to do without coordination sure because then there's an exit valve it's like if the if the bank of japan are doing what they're doing and the u.s is doing the complete opposite you go well heck this is a, this is a no-brainer i'm gonna go and put my money into dollars but when they're all sort of doing the same thing then they can actually push that envelope a lot further than they could have otherwise done which is kind of interesting now in that basically the u.s has got a synthetic yeah, you know, yield differential because it's, the simple fact that they're not instituting QE right now means that they're basically hiking rates, synthetically hiking rates. Um, in that, so so now you come back to that environment whereby you know dollars are flowing into the US. 
that can be treated by the Fed as as a signal that things are good in the US and that they have the ability to push that envelope further, even further than they have so far pushed it, right? Yeah. And if that is the case, then you go, do these guys have the intelligence or the or do they know how far that can push before it falls over? The answer is that no, they don't know what they're doing. So I could you know I could potentially see that if all of that comes to pass, it it allows it allows the political clout to turn around and print yeah. much more than they probably should, which yeah. in itself would be the final death knell yeah. to the dollar. But yeah, but and maybe I missed what you said there, but I think are you, there needs to be some kind of a crisis or more pain before they have the political capital. Correct. To do that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I I agree with you 100 percent on that. And, you know, and so I kind of have these debates. And when I talk to, you know, the the people that are are kind of the the, on on the inflation argument, I I completely get that argument. It it makes a lot of sense. Of course, that's what the central banks are going to have to do. You know, history has shown that the the easiest way for governments to get out of, you know, over indebtedness is to inflate the currency. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Right. I just happen to think that you know, before they have the political capital to do that big, big, you know, flip the switch print job, I think we need to have a lot more pain. And I think they have a need to have a lot more political cover to do it than they have right now. I mean, look at, I mean, you got the rise of Trump, you have, you know, Brexit, you've got these other referendums, you know, again, people don't necessarily understand what's going on, but there's a, there's, there's a, there's a revolt on the status quo, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> You know, like it or not, whether you're part of the status quo or not part of the status quo or whether you agree with Brexit or if you don't agree with Brexit. I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point um, that there's a there, there's a there's a pushback against doing things the way we've always done them. And I think the central bankers have to be very careful um, how they do it. Now, I also think that if things get bad enough and the economy gets bad enough and we go into deflation, there will be people praying for inflation. And if the Fed comes out and says, listen, if we do this, you're going to get your inflation, they'll, they're going to say, please do it, right? Um, and that's like, who, who, who was it that said, never let a never let a crisis go to waste or something? Yeah, you know, it so, was, um, said that. I think it oh, might have been Rumsfeld, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it was somebody like that, right? And so, you know, the next time we get a, you know, <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually, you think about it back to Brexit, right? I mean, the U.S. stock market was down three or four percent from its all-time high, and they were talking about central bank activity to, you know, step in and calm the markets. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, we're four percent off the all-time high, five percent off the all-time high. You know, yeah, we're what about two percent right now. Um, and, <laughs> exactly. and and but and at the same time, the market would not be shocked if the Fed came out with a QE plan next quarter. No, not at all. Not at all. But we're two percent off all-time highs. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's it's just this bizarro world and one that we've all got to navigate. So very much enjoyed your um, your thoughts on that, Brent. And uh, until next time, yeah, let's uh, let's keep let's the dialogue open. Um, happy to come back. Happy to talk to you. I learn a lot when we do this, so happy to keep doing it. Fantastic. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information go to capitalistexploits.at